I have a little clipping here that I pasted some time ago in the cover of my Bible that I'd like to read. This is attributed to Martin Luther. He says, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest expression every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady on all the battlefield beside is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. It's not my nature at all to engage in controversy. I just don't like to argue and, and fuss and fight. But on this issue of the foundation, the origin of all things, uh, we need to be well aware that this is the, the, the real point at, con- uh, at controversy today with the world and with the devil. I find so often around the country, and I get traveled quite a little bit with the sort of work that I do, that Christian people just would like to think that maybe this problem will go away. Just ignore it. It's really not too important. It's kind of a side issue. We ought to just concentrate on the main theme of the gospel and preach Christ and not worry about these controversial things. Well. That's exactly what we've been doing now for the past century or more. And that's the reason why we've practically uh, seen biblical Christianity go down the drain in our generation, our young people especially. The, the problems, the, the attitudes, the activities of, our, uh, of the great majority of our young college students today are the direct result of what they've been taught in the schools from kindergarten on up. If they, after all, if they're... If, if there's no God, if they're related to the animal, then why not live like animals? It follows. And we need to be vitally concerned with this matter of origins. The creation is not just a side issue, but it's foundational to everything else. That's why God put it first in the Bible, it's in the first chapter, and everything else builds from it. And if you cut out Genesis chapter 1, it's only a matter of time before the, the rest of the Bible will be cut out. <clears throat> Now, when we deal with evolution, we, we can argue and, I think, prove, as we've indicated last night, that it's unscientific, it's unscriptural, it has no real foundation, in fact. But uh, the real villain in the case, you might say, in, the, in this whole argument is the question of time, of geologic time. And if the Earth is only a few thousand years old, of course, like the Bible says, then there's no possibility of anything but creation. Evolution just is, is completely... A, unreasonable and impossible. But if the world is five billion years old, like the evolutionist and the geologist says, say then, well, at least it looks like there's time enough for something like evolution to be involved. And even if it were not, uh, even if things didn't come by evolution, we would wonder why God would create the world and all these things five billion years ago and have all of this process going on for billions of years. And if his purpose is man, and man is just sort of at the very tag end of geologic time, it just doesn't really seem to make much sense. And yet, uh, Christian people have been just so afraid of this issue of time, that they've just resorted to all kinds of devices trying to fit these billions of years into the Bible some way in order to avoid this controversy. And I think that we're sowing, we're reaping what we have sown now because of that especially since uh, 1925 or so, here in Tennessee, the Scopes trial. Christians took such an awful beating on that one 
although they got the legal decision all right, but they lost in the minds of the American people. And I think from that time on especially, they just sort of uh, ignored the whole thing and they concentrated on other parts of the Bible and had just uh, let this go. And as a result, for two generations now, there have been almost uh, no real creationistic, that is in the scientific realm. I know Christians have continued to believe by faith, but without anything but faith. And the result is what we see now. Well, the Lord has, in recent years, I think, been doing a, a wonderful work in this area. There are now, as I mentioned the other day, just in our Creation Research Society, some 400 scientists who are creationists have graduate degrees in science, and we can say now that it's possible for a man to be well-trained and experienced in any branch of science, whatever, because we have people from all the fields of science, and to understand the facts and the data of his science within the framework of the biblical record of creation and the other things that uh, the Bible talks about. So it, uh, it's no longer justified for anyone to say that science teaches evolution and that all scientists are evolutionists. Most of them are. Most uh, lawyers and uh, doctors and bricklayers and everybody else are, just because most people are evolutionists today, but uh, not because of the facts of science that they are. And we don't need to be afraid of this issue. I think we need to study it, to get involved with it, and to do all we can and to speak out on it. For example, uh, I hope that the, the Christian folks in Tennessee, as well as in other states, will really get after their school boards and their boards of education and see if we can't do something about getting evolution out of the schools. Now, I don't think that uh, I don't think that we can pass a law again like they had in Tennessee and other places years ago for, forbidding evolution, but we at least can insist that if evolution is to be taught, that creation also must be taught, and both of them must be presented equally. This is what we've done in California, and the state board has said that, okay, we'll do it this way. Uh, other states are beginning to, to move, and we're, we're trying, of course, to prepare textbooks so that these will be available, at least. We do need your prayer and, and your support in the, in the different places in order to get this implemented. And I think the Lord is, is going to be doing some very interesting and wonderful things in these last few years before the Lord comes. Well, I, I didn't really mean to get off into that. This was all a preliminary to, this, to a discussion of geologic time this morning, the geological ages. As you know, the, the accepted view is that the earth and the solar system came into being by some unknown process about five billion years ago. And then the ages rolled along, and maybe about three billion years ago, the chemicals had, in the primeval slime had become somewhat complex, and all of a sudden some of them acquired the ability to replicate themselves, and so life began. And then for about two billion years ago, it was only very simple forms of life, uh, one-cell life, and then, then complex life forms evolved, multi-celled, uh, metazoan life. And then in the Cambrian period, complex marine organisms developed, still invertebrates. Then later in the Ordovician, probably, vertebrates evolved in fishes. The Devonian era was the great age of the fishes. Then uh, later in the Permian especially, amphibians evolved. So some of these fishes began to go up on the land and evolved into amphibians. Then some of those later in the Mesozoic era evolved into reptiles. And then we have the era of the great dinosaurs, which lasted about 100 million years. And they finally were wiped out 
about 80 million years ago. And from these reptiles, two lines developed, one leading into birds and one into mammals. And so we have the age of mammals and birds in the tertiary period, beginning about 70 or 80 million years ago. About uh, 60 or so million years ago, one of these ape lines diverged into two, or one of these mammal lines diverged into two branches, one leading to the apes, one leading to man. And finally, modern man, in essentially all of his present form and characteristics, appeared about uh, at least a million years ago, and probably further back than that. I read an article last week in Science News, I think. They found some new fossils of Australopithecus in South Africa, which uh, they dated at about five million years, and these are considered to be man. That is this person, whoever he, Australopithecus, used tools, he walked erect, and so on. So he would be defined as a man, probably, although it's still pretty fragmentary as far as the uh, type of bones that have been found. Well, this whole picture of the evolutionary progression of life over these vast reaches of geologic time is just a part of our modern consciousness today. And if you tell somebody that you believe that the earth was only created 6,000 years ago, why, they immediately think, well, you're just hopelessly ignorant. You're one of these blind fundamentalists, and you have no idea about the, about the facts of life. And they just write you off or, or well, nobody believes that the earth is 6,000 years old today. All, we all know that it's 5 billion years old. But how do we know that? Now, the, the actual history that we have, in terms of written records, goes back about 4,000 years, maybe five, depending on exactly how we date the first dynasty in Egypt and so on, and whether there were overlapping dynasties in Egypt, upper and lower Egypt. And there are a lot of questions, but at the most we can't trace written history back more than 5,000 years or so. Then beyond that, we have to use radiocarbon or some other indirect geophysical process to date the archaeological site or whatever it is that we're trying to find or to date. So we don't really have any records going back more than four or five thousand years. So how do we know what took place five billion years ago or anything in between? Well, we have to use these various processes. And we'll discuss these uh, later on at the uh, session at 11 o'clock. But right now, I think the first thing we ought to do is to examine the Word of God and to see what does the Bible teach. Is it possible that we have misunderstood the Bible? Can we find some room in it somewhere for these five billion years? And this is not just a side issue. This is not, it's not just a matter of how many years are involved, but rather it's what is the framework of history within which God's purpose in creation and redemption is, is taking place. It's not just the number of years, but what happened during those years that we're really concerned with. Well, there are, of course, the, the 6,000 years, the Usher chronology, that uh, is written in the margins of a lot of Bibles, is based on the assumption that the data given in Genesis 1, 5, and 11, especially those three chapters, is, is valid, that these are valid data. These are the three chapters which give chronological information in the early parts of the Bible. Genesis 1 gives the period of history from the initial creation up to and including the creation of man. It says it took place in six days. That was the chronological period from uh, the beginning to man. Then Genesis 5 gives the chronology from Adam down to the flood, and it uh, works out to be about 1,656 years. And then Genesis 11 gives the chronology from the flood down to Abraham, 
And this is another, I forget exactly, but not quite 400 years. So that altogether there are about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. And then we're down within the realm of uh, secular history, and we know pretty well where Abraham fits in, and uh, in terms of the other nations of the world, Egypt and so on, that's generally accepted. That was somewhere around 2000 B.C. In fact, you can work it out, too, from the Bible and the various uh, data that are given later in the, uh, the different chapters and chronicles and so on that give chronological information. So, based on the information that we have in the Bible, we do come out with about 4,000 B.C. as the time of creation. So, now, if really this should be 5 billion years instead of 6,000 years, where do we fit it in? Now, there are three possibilities. One would be that the geological ages took place before the six days of creation. And this would be what we commonly call the gap theory. Now, there are different forms of this. Some people put the gap before Genesis 1-1, that all this took place before Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. Well, this is a little far-fetched, I think. Uh, more, more people put it in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, the idea being that God created everything in the beginning, and then the geological ages took place, and then there was a cataclysm which destroyed the world as it had developed up to that point, leaving the world in the condition described in Genesis 1-2, without form and void, with darkness on the face of the deep. According to the gap theory, then, the geological ages took place before the six days of creation. Another possibility would be that they took place during the six days of creation, which means, then, that we would have to have some form of the day-age theory, which would say that the days of creation were essentially the same as the ages of geology. That's really, those are really about the only possibilities there as far as pre-human history is concerned. The other possibility would be that Genesis 1 doesn't really give us any history at all, but it's simply an allegory. A religious, a story of religious truth, but not of historical truth. Now, as far as human history is concerned, of course, now we go to Genesis 5 and 11, and in order to take this 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and stretch it into a million years from the earliest man by the evolutionary system, the only thing we could do there is to assume that there's some kind of gaps in these genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. Now, it may be that there are some gaps because we know that in, for example, Matthew 1, where it gives the genealogy of Christ, that there are some gaps there. We check those against the corresponding data back in the Old Testament, and we find that there are some names missing in Matthew 1. And we get the picture then that when the Hebrew says so-and-so begat somebody, that this doesn't necessarily mean a statement of father-son relationship, but rather of, of ancestry that so-and-so was the ancestor of the next person in the list there. And if that's the sort of thing that we have in Genesis 5 and 11, then there might be a number of generations missing here and there so that we could stretch out that uh, genealogy. And we'd have to do something like that if we're going to accept the, the standard history of man as given to us by the secular anthropo anthropologists. Well, now let's look at these three uh, theories, the gap theory and the day-age theory and the well, the gap theory, the, the, the post-Adam gap theory, gaps in the genealogies. The allegorical theory, I think we can just sort of dismiss. We're not really concerned so much with that uh, here because we all accept Genesis 1 as real history. 
But I do think we need to recognize that an increasing number of conservatives, evangelicals so-called, are accepting that allegorical theory of Genesis. Not only of Genesis 1, but of Genesis 1 through 11. That whole section is treated now more and more as sort of of super history, not real history, but something over and beyond history. It's, uh, it's religious truth, but not physical truth. Um, I think that this is true, that uh, this theory is taught in all the Southern Baptist colleges and seminaries, for example. It's taught in other conservative seminaries. For example, the Missouri Lutherans are supposed to be conservative. Uh, the Concordia Seminary teaches that. Uh, Calvin Seminary, the Christian Reformed Church, is supposed to be conservative, but they teach that. Fuller Seminary teaches that, and on and on. A lot of so-called conservative schools are teaching this allegorical theory of Genesis now. So we can't just uh, ignore it. It's there, and, and people are accepting it. And they've come to that position because they feel that it just cannot be defended scientifically and historically. So we have to interpret it figuratively or allegorically. Well, but the problem, of course, with that, if, if Genesis 1 through 11 is not real history, then how come the later writers of the Bible thought it was? The, the New Testament certainly accepts Genesis 1 to 11 as history. I made a little study of this recently. I've been teaching a course in Old Testament survey uh, up there in California. In the, uh, in the process of this, I decided that I'd read that Genesis was quoted some 80 times in the New Testament, or referred to, and so I decided to see for myself, and I found, sure enough, that not only Genesis, but just the first 11 chapters of Genesis are quoted or referred to in a very clear, direct way at least 80 times in the New Testament. And every one of the eight writers of the New Testament referred to that portion of Genesis. So, for example, if Paul was wrong when he talked about Adam being a real man, then how do we know he's right in anything else? We just have to cut out all of the epistles of Paul, and uh, when Peter talks about the Great Flood, if he's wrong about that, then the rest of his epistles you can't trust. And when John in the book of Revelation talks about the creation and the tree of life and, and all of this, and when, he, when, when Jesus talks about uh, Adam, you remember the Lord Jesus himself said, when they asked him about putting away his wife, uh, or, or your wives, and he said, Haven't you read that he which made him in the beginning, made him male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? Right. And you notice there, by the way, people nowadays say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other. These are two contradictory stories of creation, and so they say, Which one do you believe? And so forth. Well, the Lord Jesus quoted from Matthew 1. He says, He made him in the beginning male and female. And in the next breath, he quoted from Matthew 2 and says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. He took them both right together and accepted them both as history. Apparently, he wasn't aware of these modern higher critical results. <clears throat> he didn't find any conflict except in both as history. Well, so you begin to see if Genesis 1 through 11 is simply an allegory or, or a liturgy or something like that. It's only a matter of logic and reason and just a little time before all the rest of the Bible is, is given up. And that's what's happening, of course. It becomes simply a religious book like other religious books, and Christianity becomes a social reform movement like others, and uh, it's the end of it. And that's happened over and over again already, and it's happening now. So this allegorical theory, I think we'll just say that uh, we must dismiss as a possibility. But now... The other theories do try to accept Genesis as history, but then fit these geological ages in it. Now we want to examine and see whether this is possible. That's well, I don't know whether you've read the book uh, 
The Christian View of Science and Scripture by Bernard Ram, but that has been a very influential book over the past decade or so. Bernard Ram at the time was Director of Graduate Studies at Baylor. He's now at California Baptist Seminary. And he a, was a, considered a fundamentalist, conservative, but uh, this book, The Christian View of Science and Scripture, had had a, has had a tremendous impact in our generation on uh, Christians. It's been responsible, I think, for many of our Christian colleges, uh, the interdenominational type of conservative Christian college like Wheaton and so on, uh, going in this direction, that is, in the liberal direction. And the American Scientific Affiliation, which was an earlier group of scientists who were Christians, has gone almost over to, entirely over to theistic evolution. And I think largely as a result of that book, it's had a tremendous influence. And in this book, he describes these different possibilities. He talks about theistic evolution and progressive creation, which is a, just a, a different way of saying theistic evolution. The idea is that every once in a while God did a little creating along the way, but mostly it was evolution. And he talks about the gap theory and the, the day-age theory and so on. And he mentions the naive literal view, by which he means everything was created in six days, 6,000 years ago. Well, if you'll pardon the expression, in my own thinking, I've gone through a little evolution over the past uh, 20 years. In college, I was an evolutionist. All through college, I was, you might say, a theistic evolutionist. Got out of school and began to read a little bit and study the scriptures again and other things. And found a lot I'd been taught in college wasn't so. And finally became uh, an advocate of the day-age theory. Well, the more you study, though, uh, the more I studied, at least, the more I was convinced that that wouldn't work, and so then I went to the gap theory, and the first book that I published advocated the gap theory, and that one's out of print now, so I can't get it. But uh, then later I saw that that wouldn't work, and uh, finally I became a naive literalist. And, uh, <laughs> well, let's look at the day-age theory. A bit. This is the theory that the Hebrew word yom for day can under, be understood as a long, indefinite period of time, a long age, so that the, in six times the Lord created heaven and earth rather than in six days. Well, it's true that the Hebrew word does lend itself to that kind of interpretation occasionally if the context justifies. Like sometimes it talks about the day of the Lord or maybe the day of adversity or something of that sort. Meaning, meaning an indefinite period of time, just like we use the word day in English in a, in a similar sense occasionally, like in the, in, in the day of the early uh, colonists or something. But make, having that possibility is different from having it teach that in Genesis 1, and the context has to justify it in order to have that kind of structure. And if you check through the concordance and so on, how many times this word is used, you'll find that at least 90% of its occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a literal solar day. And whenever it means anything else, well, and in practically every case, it can mean a literal solar day, like even when it says the day of the Lord. Although this may be a period of time, it also can be the day on which the, the period of judgment begins. So just about every time when the word occurs, it can mean a literal day. And most of the time it has to. Once in a while, the context will justify an indefinite meaning. But now you check this. Never, in all of these hundred, I guess thousands of times it's used in the Old Testament, does it mean a definite period of time with a beginning and an ending, circumscribed, a definitely identified period of time, unless that period of time is a literal solar day. Now, 
the context would have to justify clearly, and in the context in Genesis 1, where it's used for the very first time, God defined it. God defines his terms, even though some people don't. And the very first time the word is used, it says, God separated the light from the darkness, and the darkness he called night, and the light he called day, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So it was defined there by, by God as the period of light in the uh, cyclical succession of light and darkness, which means the day and night, just like we have now, the earth began to rotate on its axis. Now, the sun was not yet created, but God had established some kind of a, of a source of light for the first three days, and that source provided the same function that the sun did later in providing a day-night cycle for the first three days. And the first day, the second day, and so on, and then God put the light bearers in the sky, and he made one to rule the day and one to rule the night, and he also made the stars, it says, on the fourth day. And uh, that was the fourth day, and the same word was used there as for the first three days, so it's the same thing. And it's when he created the sun and the moon and the stars, he said, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And he also said, let them divide the day from the night, just like he'd said the light on the first day was to divide the day from the night. So it's obviously the same thing. Now, furthermore, and I think this is significant, whenever the period is, is definitely identified with a beginning and an ending, and as, a, as one in a series, as it is there in Genesis 1, like the first day, the second day, and like the evening and the morning, and so on, Whenever you find that kind of construction in the Old Testament, it always, without exception, means a literal solar day. And this is not a rare occurrence. There, there are over a hundred times, for example, in the Pentateuch where evening and morning are used, and always they mean a literal evening and a literal, literal morning, never anything like the evening of, a, of an era or the dawning of an age or something like that. never means that. And whenever you find the number, first, second, and third attached to the word day, and here again there are at least a hundred occurrences like this just in the five books of Moses. Always means a literal day. And then I think another conclusive evidence is given to us in the Ten Commandments where God quotes from the account of creation as justification for observing the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days shalt thou do all thy work, and so on. The seventh is the Sabbath, and if thou shalt do no work. And the basis for that was, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. And obviously, it's the same thing. It would be pointless for God to say, now you be very careful to observe six literal days of work and then a literal day of rest, because in six long indefinite ages God worked and then he rested in a long indefinite age and so on. It, it wouldn't have any validity. And then besides that, the word itself, whenever the word occurs in the plural, yamin, days, so that it can't be just an indefinite period now, but it has to be a series of periods, whenever it occurs in the plural, days, and this is a very frequent thing, it occurs 700 times in the Old Testament, yamin. If it doesn't mean literal solar days, Exodus 20.11 is the only place out of 700 where it doesn't. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Everything that God made was made in six literal days, according to the Ten Commandments, which was written with, which were written with the finger of God on a table of stone. And if anything is trustworthy in all the Bible, there would certainly be that. God himself wrote it down. Well, I think we have to say, then, that the exegesis just will not permit us to accept the days of creation as anything but literal solar days. 
Whether they were exactly 24 hours or not, I don't suppose we'd have to say that because the Earth's rate of rotation might have changed a little bit, but essentially the same type of day that we now, now have, about 24 hours at least, would have to be the meaning. We certainly don't have any room for five billion years. Now, even if we could, even if we could say that the exegesis would permit us to use the day-age interpretation, it really wouldn't help us scientifically. The idea, you see, would be that the days of creation correspond to the ages of geology, and that would mean that, that the evolutionary succession of life in the geological ages would have to correspond to the order of creation in Genesis 1, but they don't. Now, I won't take time. I see the time is running out already, but, but you could... If, well, if you want to look at it, in my book, book uh, Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science, I think I have a list of, of, I believe it's 20, I believe it's 20, it's at least 20, contradictions between the order of creation in Genesis 1 and the order of evolution in geology. They don't correspond to each other at all. There are at least 20 serious discrepancies between the two orders, so even if we could interpret the days as ages, it still wouldn't satisfy the geologists. Thomas Huxley used to say that the day-age theory was very common back in the 19th century. And he used to say that if you can interpret the Bible to teach that, why you can interpret it to mean anything. It's the most flexible and accommodating book. You can make it mean whatever you want it to. And, of course, uh, he was right. If that's all exegesis is, just to fit whatever theory happens to be popular, then uh, we really don't have a, a reliable word of God at all. So it won't help us scientifically. Neither, will, neither can it be possible exegetically. So if we're going to really respect the Bible as the Word of God, we simply have to reject the day-age theory. It won't work. Now, I recognize that many good men have held it, many men that we uh, accept in many other ways and admire their exegesis and so on, have held the day-age theory. But it's simply wrong if the Bible will not uh, justify it at all. Neither will science. What about the gap theory? And here there are, of course, I have to recognize that uh, even even more very sincere and godly men have held the gap theory. I use uh, Dr. Schofield quite a bit myself, and uh, he advocated it. Most of our Bible institutes have, and most of our Christian uh, colleges over the... Of course, they don't now. Most of them have gone away from... They've gone to this allegorical theory. But many good people have held it and still do, and I did at one time, so I sympathize. But again, I have to say that it just won't work. The gap theory simply will not fit the exegesis, nor will it fit science. Uh, the idea, of course, is that in the beginning God created the earth perfect back in five billion years ago or whatever the geologist wants. But then there, were, there was this great cataclysm at the end of the geological ages caused probably by Satan's fall in heaven. And then God recreated the earth in six literal days. The earth became without form and void instead of the earth was. And, and people make a lot out of the possibility that that Hebrew verb there in Genesis 1-2 could be translated became instead of was. Well, it can be. There are occasions when it is. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't guarantee this account, because I didn't do it, but a friend of mine who was a Bible teacher at Piedmont Bible College until recently, uh, made the, made account one time just to check it, and he he went through the uh, five books of Moses to find how many times this Hebrew verb was used, the verb of being, and he said that there were 1,522 occurrences of the Hebrew verb hayah. And normally this is translated was, but under some conditions it can be translated became. 
And he said that only in 22 out of those 1,500 occurrences could it be translated became, with the context permitted. Practically always, it simply means was, and that's why all the standard translations, not only King James but all the others, translated in Genesis 1-2 as was and not became. But even if it does mean became there, it certainly doesn't justify five billion years of a gap in there. That might be a few minutes of a gap, but that's about all. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became the initial aspect of the created world was that it was unformed and empty. It, was, it wasn't destroyed. It just wasn't finished. It wasn't finished until after the six days when God says the heavens and the earth were finished. But it was perfect for its own immediate purpose. God created the space-mass-time structure of the cosmos, the beginning, the heavens, the earth. In its basic elemental form, it was unformed then, it was unstructured, and it had no inhabitants. But uh, God didn't intend it to stay that way, as Isaiah 45, 18 says. He created it not to be, not in vain, not tohu, not unformed, not with the purpose, in other words, of being forever like that, but he formed it to be inhabited. And so the rest of Genesis 1 talks about how he, he formed, the, formed it and, in, and, and brought inhabitants to it, and it wasn't finished until it was finished. And when he says it was, at the end of the six days. But uh, apart from that, I think it uh, is pretty, uh, pretty strong... <coughs> that the work of the creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1 was a part of the work of the six days because the summary at the end of the six days says the heavens and the earth were finished and the only mention of the heavens is in Genesis 1-1. In Exodus 20-11 also it says in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. So everything in the heaven and the earth including the rocks of the earth and whatever was in the crust of the earth remaining from some kind of a previous cataclysm or something all of this, it says in Exodus 20, was made in the six days. And that included the heavens and the earth, too. And the only mention of the heavens, again, was in Genesis 1-1, so that Genesis 1-1 was a part of the work of the six days. So the initial creation, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was the first work of the first day of the week of creation. It's not a summary of the whole thing. It, neither is it a, an event isolated from the rest of it, but it was simply part of the first day. Now... <clears throat> Uh, well, I don't have time, but uh, if you want to look it up, I think in, in, my, in that book that I mentioned, Biblical Cosmology, there's something like 35 fallacies listed for the gap theory, I mean for the day-age theory, and about 25 for the gap theory. And I obviously don't have time to go over all those, but uh, there are all sorts of problems. The gap theory may seem like it helps us with the geological ages at first, superficially, but if you accept it, you immediately run into all kinds of problems, not only biblical exegesis problems, but scientific problems. I don't know of any geologist that accepts the gap theory. There's just no room for a pre-Adamic cataclysm in the accepted system of geology. They, some people say, well, it was the Ice Age. But no, the Ice Age wasn't a worldwide cataclysm. It covered down to about the middle latitudes of this country and Europe, and that was all. It wasn't a worldwide event at all. And neither is there any other event in the accepted geologic history, which the gap theory is trying to accept, which would correspond to this worldwide cataclysm right, at, right before man. There's no such thing as that at all, so no geologist would accept it. And, again, there are about the 15 scientific discrepancies with the, with the gap theory. Well, just very... Uh, well, one, one final difficulty with both theories, and I think this is uh, conclusive as far as I'm concerned, any theory that accepts the geological ages, whether it's the day-age theory or the gap theory, if you accept the geological ages... Uh, you need to know what it is that, that you're accepting. 
the geological ages, you see, it's not just a matter of so many billions of years that we're, we're concerned with, but rather what took place in those years. Now, the five billion years of geologic history, the geological ages, really, when you examine them, are synonymous with evolution. They're the same thing. Because the evidence for the geological ages is the fossil record. That's how we know they existed, or how we think that we know they existed, is the fossil record. Maybe I should verify that. Let me read here from, well, this is from the standard book on historical geology by Dunbar. He says, although the comparative study of living plants and animals may give very convincing circumstantial evidence of evolution, fossils provide the only historical documentary evidence that life has evolved from simpler to more and more complex forms. Now, the point of that is that the fossil record is the main evidence for evolution. If it were not for the fossil record, we would really have no evidence for evolution at all. That's any other than just superficial and circumstantial. So the fossil record is the main evidence for evolution, but then also the fossil record is the main evidence for the geological ages. Let me quote here from another article. This is in the American Journal of Science, which the author says, Vertebrate paleontologists, they're the ones who work with fossils, have relied upon the stage of evolution as the criterion for determining the chronological relationship of faunas. Now, maybe you didn't understand those words, I don't know, but the, the idea there is that the rocks are dated by these fossils, which they have, and the arrangement of the dates is based on the assumption of evolution, the stage of evolution of the faunas. So we decide whether a rock is a Cambrian rock 500 million years old or a Cretaceous rock 100 million years old or a Pliocene rock uh, 10 million years old or whatever it is on the basis of the fossil that it has. That's how we identify the geological ages. I could uh, give you a lot more quotations here to the same effect, but I won't take the time. I, I think it's important, though, that we realize this geologic time scale is based squarely upon the fossil record, and that in turn is based on the assumption of evolution. Let me read just one more. This is from Professor Spiker of Ohio State. This is in the Genesis Flood. Those of you that have read this, this will be familiar to you. This uh, writer says, Does our time scale then partake of natural law? No. I wonder how many of us realize that the time scale was frozen in essentially its present form by 1840. How much world geology was known in 1840? A bit of Western Europe, none too well, and a lesser fringe of Eastern North America. All of Asia, Africa, South America, most of North America were virtually unknown. How did the pioneers dare to assume that their scale would fit the rocks in these vast areas? By far most of the world. Only by dogmatic assumption. I'll skip part of this. It says, in many parts of the world it doesn't fit, but even there it's applied. The followers of the Founding Fathers went forth across the earth and in Procrustean fashion made it fit the sections they found, even in places where the actual evidence literally proclaimed denial. So flexible and accommodating are the, quote, facts, unquote, of geology. Uh, in other words, the idea is that they knew what they wanted to prove by the fossils and they made them fit. That's a scale regardless. Now, the point of this is that when we accept this, these geological ages, we're accepting the fossil sequence, which is based on evolution. We're accepting the theory of evolution when you accept the geological ages. So it's, it's not just a question of how many billion years are involved, but what took place in those years. Now, that means, then, if you do that, that you're accepting the idea that there have been three billion years of history of struggle and suffering and disease and storm and decay and disorder and death, because that's what fossils are. They're dead animals and men, maybe pre-atomite men, according to the gap theory or something. 
before there was ever any sin in the world. The Bible says, by one man sin came into the world and death by sin. So it says that there wasn't any death in the world before there was sin. There was no suffering or disorder or decay or disease or anything before sin. And it doesn't help to say, well, it was Satan's sin. Because, after all, the idea here is that Satan sinned in heaven at the end of the geological ages, and then there was a cataclysm on the earth. That doesn't really follow either. Satan's sin was in heaven, so why would God destroy the earth because of it? But anyway, uh, that took place after the geological ages, five billion years, and then there was a cataclysm. So Satan's sin took place after this three billion year record of death in the world, so Satan's sin couldn't have caused it. And you finally have to say, therefore, that if the geological ages took place at all, that God must have been the direct author and the direct cause of suffering and death in the world before there was ever any sin. He therefore used death and suffering and so forth as a means of evolving man, or whatever existed as pre-Adamite man, these million-year-old so-called human fossils. And this means that God is the direct author of evil, and this is theological chaos, I think. And therefore, I say we simply have to reject the geological ages, no matter what it may cost us in terms of academic esteem by our professional colleagues and all that. Well, time is about up, but I do want to mention just uh, very briefly this other theory, and that is the post-Adamic gap theory. The idea that we can stretch out the chronologies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 to fit the million-year record of human history, or the five-million-year, whatever it is, that the anthropologists give us. Well, let's say just a million years, because it's at least that. We have to stretch Genesis 5 and 11 to correspond to a million years of human history if we're going to accept the geological age system. Well, can you do that? There may be some gaps in Genesis 5 and 11. There are in Matthew 1, so maybe there are some gaps. But is it reasonable to stretch them that far? I don't think so. You have, you've got 20 names there from Adam to Abraham, and so there are 20 places where a gap could occur, well, not really, because some of them, it, it talks about very clearly that one, Adam was the direct father of Seth, there's no doubt about that, and Lamech was the direct father of Noah, and so on, there were several like that where there couldn't possibly be a gap, but at the most you've got these 20 names to stretch out into a million years, and that means that each gap, or each, uh, each pair of names has to have an average gap of 50,000 years in it. And that means that on the average, when it says so-and-so begat somebody, what, it, what it's really meaning is that, uh, that uh, oh, uh, Enoch lived so many years and begat somebody who was to be the ancestor 50,000 years in the future of Methuselah, and so on. Well, that just doesn't make much sense, I don't think. It, makes, it seems like it makes the whole record just completely irrelevant. Why put all this in there, if that's really the situation? There may be some slight gaps. The time of Peleg, there's a little question about that. Also, of course, you know the question about whether the Septuagint translation is right or not. The name Canaan comes in the chronology in Luke, and it isn't in Genesis. So there might be some little gaps. But at the very most, they can't be stretched more than just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand years at the very outside. Maybe by just an extreme imagination, we might say that there are gaps in there big enough to stretch out human history to maybe 10,000 years. I don't think so, but at the very most, and certainly it couldn't go beyond that. And 10,000 years isn't going to satisfy the anthropologist. He has to have at least a million years. So I think we just as well forget about trying to make the Bible match up with these theories. Now, what we need to do, therefore, you see, is not to give up the scriptures and go to the allegorical theory or something. 
but to really take the hard way and look at the actual facts of anthropology and geology and, and rethink these things and restudy them and do some real work and research and try to show what the facts of these sciences really prove. And when we do that, if we will go at it and, and do the work and support the work and so on, it has to be done, we'll find eventually that the, that the real facts of the fossils and all the rest will support the simple biblical framework, six days God created all things, and I think just 6,000 years ago, or maybe seven or something, is a little bit uncertain, even not much. So let's, uh, this is just, a, it's, not, it's not a very emotional challenge, I know, but I'm, I, I would like to just challenge you to be concerned about this. It's time that we are, we're about to lose, lose the whole ball game. If it were not for the grace of God, we would, and we need to be doing something about it. We need to be supporting this kind of work, and we need to be teaching our young people the real facts, and so on. Well, we'll continue this at the 11 o'clock hour and, and see what some of the actual facts of these uh, sciences are, the radioactive dating and, and so on. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.